from the Australian National Academy of Music. This is the Upbo Download. I'm Luke Carvin. My name is Kenny Keppel. Welcome to the show. Equality can be a really difficult thing to talk about in classical music, and so this week we've brought in Katie App. Hello, Katie. Hello. Katie, who are you? I am Katie. I'm a viola player. At the moment, I'm a freelancer in Melbourne and I do a whole bunch of different stuff. I am from Brisbane originally and I I went to uni there. And then after that, from 2012 to 2014, I was a student of Caroline Henbest's at Annam. After I graduated Annam, I kind of went down a pretty conservative road, I guess you could call it, and I got a job in an orchestra. And I, I had a trial there for six months and I decided actually, this isn't for me. And so I went out and I was on the dole for six months and then I got work and I I kind of looked in different directions to find different types of work as well as different types of volunteering opportunities, which I've found to be really rewarding. So personally and musically speaking, you've you've done quite a fair spread of of activities, yes? Yeah, I'd say so. And um, this episode is all about equality within classical music um, and we forged you in today to help us out have this conversation. To start us off, what does equality mean for you in classical music? Equality, you can you can say so many things about that but um, I guess in terms of gender equality I mean you can break it down in terms of kind of genres of things so um, for example you can have a look at the different types of people who are performing so you've got obviously men and women and I think actually in the orchestral system they've done a really good job at making equality possible because of the screening system and that that's a, a whole can of worms in itself because it's really difficult to play behind a screen and it gives you a different um, performance experience. But it does mean like the the numbers of women in orchestras, once that was set up, jumped considerably. And now it's depending on the instrument and kind of the pool of musicians you're picking from. You do have a pretty good spread of equality of the genders within that. So you've got orchestras, then you have things like chamber music and soloists, which tend to not have that kind of screening process. And so I feel like within the really prominent performers, you do see more men. It's really interesting because we're used to seeing men as being in positions of authority and being in positions of power. It's really natural for us to see men as soloists or men as like leaders of chamber groups or in these kind of really visible positions. And, you know, there are definitely women out there and they're incredible players. Like, uh, you know, you can you can name so many, but there there is still, I feel, a bit of a skew towards men in that. Um, and then you have composers, you have conductors. There is a very difficult situation because we are used to accepting instructions and ex- accepting um, guidance and leadership yeah, from men. And that is a position of like very direct authority. And it's really difficult to find women conductors in the kind of sea of, of male conductors. In terms of composers, I think in recent times we are seeing many more women composers, which is really cool and some really exciting music has been made by both by both genders. So that's that's really encouraging. I mean if we if we're if we're saying that things are still relatively quite good these days in mm. terms of gender spread in uh, in orchestras and, and stuff like that, then uh, I guess why are we having this conversation today then? Because it all hasn't always been that way and it's it's a gradual process and we're not there yet. Yeah. We certainly haven't achieved what most would see as gender equality within no. classical art music so i guess one of the things that we wanted to kind of uh explore today was like what needs to be done or like what do we see as as the goal here 
<laughs> I'll defer to Katie on this one. Like, like, ideally, like, what does equality look like? Is it a complete 50-50 spread of female-male composers and in, in, in concert programs? Is it that within the, the players themselves? I don't think it needs to be 50-50 within every single concert or every single ensemble. But I think overall you should see this picture and see an equal representation of men and women in any of these fields within music and, of course, in life in general. That would be great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and also there's a... As a woman, there's often an intangible feeling of being inferior. And I feel like, <laughs> I feel like, but it's true, it's kind of a feeling and it's a sense that it's pervasive mm-hmm. and that it's not down to one thing in particular that you can change and then you'll feel equal. It's a whole culture that has to change. And I think we can look at numbers and they're really important, but it is also to do with whether you feel equal or not. Do you think that because classical music has in the past, and I'm talking like at least 100, if not 200 years ago, that then it was a seriously male-dominated scene, do you think that that is the root or the cause of this sort of this feeling of inequality? Oh, I think I think absolutely it is, but it's to, it's wider than music. It's to do with all of life and how men and women are seen in the kind of broader society and culture. Yeah. So um, we've come a long way. Yes. But we've still got a way to go. And there are some very powerful women making inroads into achieving equality. One of those is Claire Edwards, the artistic director and percussionist from Ensemble Offspring, who I sat down with last week to talk about with some of these issues. So let's have a little listen to that. So I'm Claire Edwards, and I'm the artistic director and percussionist of Ensemble Offspring. Um, one of the questions here, is it easier to achieve equality in new music than classical music, given the patriarchal nature of the classical canon, do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, yes, it is a bit easier to bring that equality because it's just smaller. We're less reliant on ticket sales. Um, so in that sense already, you know, I mean, our whole Ensemble Love Springs whole mantra is the championing of living composers, most a lot of them Australian, and the commissioning of new works. So it's much, I guess, easier for us to make sure we're very aware of, of commissioning at least 50% female composers than an orchestra or an opera company that is commissioning a lot less composers than us, I guess. So in that sense, yes, it is probably an easier scene. I mean, hopefully, I'm also hoping, and I'm already kind of seeing it, that through us kind of championing a handful of Australian female composers, it sort of like throws them a bit more into the mainstream and they become composers that that other bigger companies are aware of. It, it, I do find it a bit of a fraught topic to discuss because, like I said before, I don't like the word feminism. I don't like the idea that you would get just get an opportunity because you're a woman or because you're in the minority. So that's why I keep coming back to this fact that artistic integrity and artistic worth is is the absolute number one priority. And I guess my point is just that, especially these days, if you look at the number of men and women in conservatoriums who are studying, like the equality is there. So what I have noticed is that females often don't tend to push themselves into situations as much. They might not put themselves on the line. Then we've got the whole issue, of course, of of having children and periods where you're not able to write as much perhaps. But I think, you know, why not make it a big deal in music and, and we can lead the way. Like business is sort of probably 
even behind where we are in terms of making the point that, that there is no difference and there should be equality, you know. By the time you retire and whatever that means in this field, what do you want to have achieved with regard to equality? <laughs> um, that's nice that you said retire because I usually just say die. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing probably, I'd say. You know, in a way, like my bigger picture plan for, for when I finish up my career as a percussionist is probably more generally about the way the general public understands and perceives new music. And I think the whole female composer thing is like a total industry subset of that. I don't think it's something that the general public necessarily are ever going to become aware of. You know what I mean? Like it's just something that they, that we change the status quo and then that's just what mm. the way it is. But I don't think it's something that the general public are ever going to sort of go, oh yeah, there are a lot more female composers being played on the radio these days. I'm not sure that they'll notice. And I think more importantly for me is just that new music is is accepted by people. They listen with open ears. They are open to styles that aren't steeped in a very, <laughs> I don't know how to say it, a harmonic tradition that we all recognise, you know. And also that on the other side of things, pop music with chords one, four and five, that people are more open-minded to know that there's more out there than just that as well. So, I mean, I see, I see my role as, as kind of bigger than just the female composer thing, but I do hope within our industry, Ensemble Offspring's actions this year are going to gradually change just, just the accepted norm. Like, I just want it to become normal that there would be about 50-50 of female and male composers. And this is only really going to happen when programming does become not just classical music by the way. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not going to happen in orchestra land for a long time as long as they keep their programming mantras of mostly programming music prior to like 1960. So that was uh, that was Luke's interview with Claire Edwards, artistic director of Ensemble Offspring and uh, some very poignant points there. Katie, she mentioned something that she doesn't like the word feminism. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? That's a really interesting one. Um, and it's something that I've thought about a lot, actually, because the word feminism is a bit of a controversial word. It's controversial because its definition is not solid. People have different interpretations of what the word feminism actually means. And you can you can look up a dictionary. And I, actually, I don't know what the dictionary definition would be. Hey, it's our uh, future editing Luke here. Uh, we looked it up. Merriam-Webster defines feminism as the theory of the political, economic and social equality of the sexes. Alright, back to the show. But some people feel that the word feminism means equality between genders and it can also extend to equality um, between lots of different people groups, for example, race or socioeconomic state. But for other people, the word feminism means man-hating, basically. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of... I, I feel like a lot of guys feel that that is sort of what feminism means. Like, it's it's sort of women against men. Yeah, and is, I can understand that mm. because it has been a fight mm. and it's been a struggle as well. And actually, something that interesting that I heard a few months ago... Sorry, guys, but when privilege is taken away it feels like oppression so when you lose your privilege that is maybe unjustly held over other people you feel oppressed and i think that we can 
feel that in lots of different circumstances. For example, I'm seen as white, so I have white privilege. You, and you if, are white, to be fair. <laughs> I'm half Asian. Um, <laughs> as am I. Ta-da. Me too. But <laughs> I look white and therefore I'm treated as a white person. If I was to have that taken away, I would feel oppressed. And as men, if you have your male privilege taken away, that feels like oppression. If there are any solid rules to try and create equality, then it feels like, hey, hang on, this is kind of, this is anti-men or this is, this is taking away what should be ours and how it has been ours. So... It's, it's a change from the norm, and therefore it feels like oppression, which it isn't, but it feels like it. So I guess part of, part of it is just like acknowledging that patriarchy of the past is essentially oppression of women. Yeah, it is. And so to change that status quo, there's always going to be um, some who feel like they're being oppressed through that process. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, even if you can think about it very rationally, and say, oh, okay, well, I know that this is not oppression, but it will still potentially feel like that, even if you're totally on, on board intellectually. Mm. And so that, that kind of accounts for why there's a big difference in some people's perceptions of the word feminism and what it means. So speaking of where we've been, one of the points that Claire was making was that it's easier perhaps to, to achieve that equality in the realm of newer composition because there are so many more female composers uh, composing than the ones in the past, at least that we know of. Mm. Well, at least that have sort of the same privileges and access to like publishing and performance and musical education. Mm. It's so much more equal than it used to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at our kind of standard classical canon, you'd be hard pressed to find one woman in like the whole of it. And that's that's a general cultural thing. It's a Western cultural thing as well as anything. But that, as you said... Sorry. That re- sorry, that reflects like the norm of the time, Absolutely, right? yeah. And it reflects the fact that women were not really supposed to do anything much outside the home. Um, and while you could probably... There were women composing for themselves and for their families that wouldn't have gotten published. And for example, I mean, even as late as Fanny Mendelssohn, while she has since her death kind of become recognised as a composer. And to some extent during her life, I mean, she had her brother publish some of her works under his name. And at first when I when I heard about that, I thought, oh, you know, that's really mean of him to just kind of steal her works. But actually he was doing her a favour because otherwise they just wouldn't have gotten published because she was a woman. So we have that that barrier in terms of finding women composers who lived before like mid-1900s, really. Yeah. So you've just prequeled there uh, quite nicely a conversation, uh, an interview that we haven't in fact heard yet with uh, um, Anim alumna Gemma Tomlinson. Uh, I sat down with her recently and talked to her about her fellowship project, which is all about women composers. So let's have a listen to that. Okay, so uh, my name is Gemma Tomlinson and I play the cello. I am currently undertaking a fellowship at the Australian National Academy of Music. And I'd like to think of myself as a multifaceted muse- musician. So I teach, I like to perform in chamber music, everything that I could possibly think of. And when were you at Annan so as, as a student? As a student. Uh, so I was a student for three years between 2013 and 15. And this year you're back doing a fellowship? Yeah, so... Uh, Last year I got a little bit bored after finishing at Annam and I started thinking about how I could utilise my time as a fellow if I wanted to do something and 
the idea of presenting a concert series based on all-female repertoire really appealed to me, mainly because the music was just so great that I was coming across. So I really just wanted to promote this fantastic music. What came first, the desire to explore female music or the, the specific compositions themselves? Well, it, that's a really good question. It actually came... Initially, I wanted to learn a piece by Kaya Sariaho, Set Papillons, and I performed that at Rubik's Collective's debut concert. Rubik's Collective is my uh, new music ensemble that I'm part of. And I performed that in our first concert, and composer Lisa Cheney was there, and she was very inspired by the piece and wanted to write a solo work based off samples, the electronic samples of the, the music that I played, and also... Uh, snippets of Sariaho's voice itself and so she put together this beautiful piece which I performed on International Women's Day the following year. After that concert that's that's basically when I, I thought okay let's gather together all those pieces that I already knew about and find some new ones. Basically the theme of female music was the secondary thing I guess the music that I had already was actually so wonderful and then I already knew other pieces that happen to be by female composers and so I then found more if that makes sense. You've set yourself up as something of a bastion this year by doing the fellowship project. Your, your program is called She Speaks. It's completely female composers and the vast majority um, female performers. Do you see that you're making inroads into quality within classical new music? Yes, I guess that I'm one of many people who want to promote this but just because my program happens to represent so many different voices um, of female composers then yes I would say that I haven't seen many projects like this around and it it is something that something I'd love to continue to do I don't want it to be just a one-year thing I'd love to make this basically a theme of many projects that I go about because I think that's more important than just doing a one-off project and allowing it to just sit there and not mm. not really um, move on it, if that makes sense. If you take, um, say, like Beethoven and, <laughs> say, Lisa Cheney belonging to the same spectrum, mm. right, of, of, of innovation within composition, does equality then, do you think, favour the programming of contemporary music? It, I think it has to because back in the old days, um, it was a given that females did the housework that they just sat around. I mean, read anything about Fanny Mendelssohn. She herself believed that she wasn't supposed to be composing. Her music was uh, catalogued under Felix's name in some cases. So I don't think they just, they just simply didn't have the opportunities to write and to present their music. So it just doesn't exist. Maybe there is definitely music out there, but it's not as prevalent. Um, whereas now it, females can make a living a full-time living out of composing, not all of them, but uh, it's certainly it's, it's an option and people pursue that um, and it's normal, uh, what's well, more normal than it ever used to be. So. so that was uh, Anna Fellow, Gemma Tomlinson, uh, talking about her fellowship project for this year. An interesting thing she talked about a little bit was, well, what we can take from that, in fact, is that by championing the works of female composers, you're strengthening a cycle of performance and, in a way, advocacy. Yeah. And advocacy, as we were talking about before, is kind of a dangerous word. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a bit like feminism, right? You you have different 
um, interpretations of what it means. And I think as somebody who is involved in advocacy for people like refugees who, who really have no voice in the media apart from what uh, we as kind of Australian citizens or um, journalists can give them. It can kind of take on the colour of some... Advocacy is something that you do for somebody who is powerless, like completely powerless. Mm. And for me, I don't feel like women are. We're not equal yet, but we're, we're getting there. And we are capable of speaking for ourselves by ourselves. So... I think it's it's probably it's a reasonable word to use and when you think about it for a minute then it's like oh okay no that that makes sense because we're not equal yet so we actually do require advocacy still um, and it can be done by women it doesn't have to be done by men although it's nice if it is and it's an empowerment by both genders for women and that will help create equality. Because essentially what's happened in history is that we've had a bunch of male composers and that's reinforced mm. the next generation of yeah. male composers and that's sort of snowballed until what we have now, which is just this huge canon of male composers. And then, <laughs> cannonball. Yeah, <laughs> cannonball, good. And maybe what we need is just that, female composers engendering more female composers. Mm. We should hear a little bit from Adam Viola student, Rachel Grimwood now, um, who has a little bit to say about this. She's investigating female composers in her master's research currently. Hi, my name is Rachel Grimwood. I play the viola and I'm a third year student at Nana. You're doing some master's study currently on um, a very interesting topic. Can you tell us about that? Uh, I first decided on my master's topic because I really love the works of the composer Rebecca Clark. I wrote a lot of music for viola and reading about the kind of challenges she faced in her lifetime as a 20th century composer got me interested in the ways that female composers have been perceived across history and today. So that's really what my masters will be looking at, the life of Rebecca Clark and how the challenges she faced can be compared to the challenges composers today face. And so far in your study, what would you say are those biggest challenges for female composers of today? A big issue is programming. There's really not really a lack of female composers currently. In the past, there were more male composers, but that's for a variety of reasons, such as access to education, issues of class and also just the fact that women really weren't expected to compose at all, let alone publish. Like if they did compose, it would be perhaps like for the salon or like they would never sell their music to a publisher. That was like really not done. And so that did change over the years, especially in the 20th century with the feminist movement, female composers definitely came more to the forefront. But even today, there's a huge issue where female composers just don't get programmed as much as male composers, even new music, in the case of new music. What do, what do you think is the next step forward to increasing that equality? I think if people would think about maybe the inherent bias that you might have kind of deep down about what you perceive as quality music and I think a lot of people, they think of quality as something they've heard of or something that's in the canon that already exists. 
the canon really is not representative of the music that is out there. It's like really depends on what's taught in universities. It's very flexible, but also very inflexible, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the canon was already set from history. And like you said, there was sort of a systematic exclusion of females from that canon, like as it has progressed throughout, like up until the 20th century. Exactly. Yeah. So if we were to go about questioning the canon that exists and just thinking about composers on the fringes that have perhaps been excluded, I think we will really discover a lot of music that is really amazing music, but just isn't really given a second thought. And that's what I'm aiming to do in my recitals this year and last year. My recitals were programs of all female composers, like a range of composers from different time periods. Even like I was surprised I discovered just so much amazing music that I couldn't even fit it all into three recitals. Yeah, that's what I'm aiming to do, just like expose people to a range of music that they might not have considered. So if there's any takeaway from that, it's that there are fantastic works out there by female composers that we just don't know about because they haven't seen the light of day for want of um, performance opportunities. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we... It's not just orchestras who have the responsibility to program lots of different works by composers of today as well as yesterday and of both genders, but you can see it in chamber music concerts or solo concerts or kind of anything. We all as performers have a responsibility to strive for equality in the works that we perform and the works that we study. So we're not going to reach a conclusion for this conversation, but it's been super interesting to explore a, a bunch of different perspectives. I yeah. feel like we've discussed quite a lot so far. Katie, is yeah. there anything else you'd like to say to wrap up this? Wrap this up. Oh, look, I wish I could wrap. That would make it so good. Well, I can't. Maybe we'll leave that for another episode, but um, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> no, I think it's just basically what we've been saying the whole time. Like, there, there's good music out there by fantastic female composers. Um, there are really wonderful performers, there are conductors, there are administrators. There's, there are women in music and it's getting better, but we're not there yet. And it's a conversation that we need to continue. And that's why it's a really great thing to be discussing this with you guys today. So thanks and for the I'm opportunity. I'm so, so glad that we had this conversation today. It's really, really awesome. Likewise. One last thing for the young performers, for the young composers out there who are only perhaps beginning to realize the extent of this inequality and would like to change that face of, of the field, What's the advice? You Share are the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I think it's really good to reiterate that we you are as good as any guy. Like, if you work hard, if you are diligent, and if you are passionate about what you do, then there's nothing to say that you can't achieve equality because that's, that's where we're going, and we'll get there one day. But you just got to keep going and got keep believing in yourself. And in other, other girls and women, like, there can... There can be difficulties within the community of women and trying to support each other. Sometimes it can get a bit bitchy, but um, I would encourage you to just not let that get to you and just support other women and other girls as much as you can. They deserve it. Awesome. So after delving into that issue quite deeply, uh, let's come up to the surface a little bit. And, um, like a whale. Yeah, like, like a whale. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Katie. No worries. Anytime. Glad you're here. 
It's time for this week's Theremin Throwdown. In the studio with us now is Vicky Zhang, who is a first-year cello student at Adam. Uh, how are you, Vicky? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Excellent. And so, uh, kick it off, Luke. Right. First up, that was some of the most excellent theremin playing I've ever heard in my life. Have you? <laughs> had you practiced? No. Um, I didn't know, but like after playing around with it for like about thirty seconds before we actually started recording, I like it's actually quite similar to the cello fingerboard because of the way the pitches are positioned. Vicky, tell us about yourself. Where are you from? Um, I'm from Sydney. So my parents are Chinese, but I was born in Australia. Right, wasn't what I asked, but that's fine. And what what brings you to Anam? Like, why are you here? Well, because I really want to improve myself, and it's a good place to go. And the people are great. The city is wonderful, and I'm really happy to be here. Did you know much about Howard Penny before you came here, the cello teacher? I did have one lesson with him before my audition, and I felt like he was really amazing, and that I could learn lots from him. So, yeah, I did know a little bit. Would you say he's a hero of yours? Oh, definitely. Mm. Uh, do, do, do you have any other uh, like uh, heroes of cello? Oh, definitely. My, my former teacher in Sydney, Umberto Clarici, um, he's been an absolute inspiration. And also in the biggest sphere, or well, not really, Yo-Yo Ma. I really, really like him. What is it about Yo-Yo Ma that you like so much? Because he can play in any style and he has the freedom to express like whatever he wants. And he has that flexibility to do so with the way he plays and he does lots of different projects like community outreach and different cultural like projects with people all over the world and that's something I would really love to do one day. So this episode we're talking about feminism and equality within classical music. Do you have any opinions on how we're doing as a field? I think we're naturally taking a really positive trajectory without really putting forth the idea, it's just naturally come about that more female musicians are more prominent in the classical music sphere. So, yeah, was that the question? Yeah, what do you mean by naturally? Like, what does that mean, do you think? I mean, because like with the internet and everything, it's just become much more accessible to so many people and naturally more females in the process. So the fact that music and music education has become so much more accessible naturally lends itself to a bigger community of people which will undoubtedly involve females because playing an instrument is a human thing it's not necessarily restricted to biological uh whatever (laughs) the structure of your bodies or something vicky thank you so much for your time thank you It's uh, been another heavy one. But we've covered some good ground, I think. Yep. Katie Yap, thank you so much for giving up your time to come and have a chat to us today. Thanks for having me here. Thanks, Katie. Remember, we can be reached at podcasts at anam.com.au. Do check out the Anam website for news of all the upcoming concerts. There are some fantastic gigs coming up, some fantastic public masterclasses. Give us a like on Facebook. That would be really, really nice. Mm-hmm. You can find us on Facebook at The Upbow Download. Tell all your friends about this podcast. Search Anam wherever you find your podcasts and we'll pop up. The Anam website is anam.com.au. And just advocate. Woo! Yeah, be advocates, everyone. All right, see you next time. Bye. Bye.